This conversation could not have happened at a better time. You see, I'm in the process of retiring from the full-time congregational rabbinate. I am in the process of finishing up a pulpit career that has lasted for more than 40 years. Over the last few weeks, I have found myself repeating the words of my rabbi, Peggy Lee, who sang plaintively, is that all there is? Is that all there is to being a rabbi? You build relationships, you teach Torah, you embody, you represent, you symbolize. And then you reach the end of your career, and then what? All of my friends who are retiring, it doesn't matter what their careers are, what their jobs were, they find themselves going through the same struggle. For some of them, it's, okay, I wake up in the morning, now what do I do? But for others, it's more like, I wake up in the morning, it's not what do I do, it's who am I? Who am I, if not my title, and if not my job description? And I have to tell you, you know who you are. If that's you, then you're going to have a really rough time with this retirement gig. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, still the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, but coming down the home stretch. And today, to make my life more meaningful and to enrich yours, it is greatly appreciated that he could be with us because we have with us one of the most prolific authors in America today, Bruce Feiler. Bruce is the author of, oh my gosh, wow, okay, several books on the Bible, and they all have prominent places on my shelf. I'm not getting rid of those books. Walking the Bible, Abraham, Where God Was Born, America's Prophet, which is about Moses and the relationship of the Moses story to the American story, and the first love story, which is about Adam and Eve. He's also written several books about contemporary life, about family, about the struggles we go through, and his TED courses are incredibly well-viewed, more than 4 million times. And his latest book is a book that is really necessary, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a post career world. This is the book that many of us have been waiting for. So Bruce, welcome. Rabbi Salkin, what a pleasure to be back with you, my old friend, um, and to be back with you in this moment of, are you in a life transition? I think you're in a life transition. I'm waiting for the opera based on your book to come out. <laughs> I think it should be sung. I think it should be danced. Mm. I think it should be a musical. So We've known each other for quite some time, and it's really yeah. good to reconnect with you. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of rewind our relationship. Do you remember when we first met? I, I was thinking about that in advance of the conversation. I think it's, as they say in those political gatherings, the great state of Georgia that first uh, brought us together. It was the great state of Georgia where you were born. You were born in Savannah, and I was five generations of Jews. Five generations, and I was friendly with your brother Andrew. Yes. And you have a sister, Carrie. 
we're a maybe it's because I grew up on the coast of Georgia, not Atlanta, where you were when we uh, when we first met when you were at the at the temple. I grew up in Mikveh Israel, which, as you know, is the third oldest congregation in the country, and they named us like hurricanes. So ABC <laughs> was your father a past president? Yeah, well, the, it, so yeah, this is Congregation Mikveh Israel we're talking about. It was founded in July of. 1733, when the state of Georgia was founded in February of that year, as you know, you know there there were no papists, <laughs> you know, no Hebrews, <laughs> um, no slaves. Interestingly enough, but there was only one doctor, <laughs> and that doctor died in a an outbreak of what what we now think is yellow fever, and then there was this shipload of Portuguese Jews that were, that was on the on en route to the Caribbean and blew off course and was off the coast of Savannah, and there. As if the cliche is not old enough and deep enough. There was a doctor on board, and they said, "Will you come, come in and and help cure us?" And he said, I, "You mentioned Moses. I always joke it's the opposite of Moses." He said, "Let my people in," and so they came aboard in July of 1733, and they formed a congregation mikveh Israel. My father, as you said, was its president in the late 1970s, but perhaps even more interesting is that my mother was its first female president in its 275-year history. Wow. So both of your parents were leaders in that community. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Let me ask you something. The other first time that we met, it is true that we met in the state of Georgia, but just in case you're in a state of confusion, we spent significant time in the state of Israel together. I, I was thinking of that also. Yeah, I, I have this one particular memory of, of being at a restaurant together. Yes. I don't, know, I don't know where it was in the course, you know, in my life, you know, which sort of doubled back to Israel. I mean, so I grew up, as I said, in Georgia and then left, right? I, I, went, to, I went to Yale in New England and then I went to Japan in the 80s and I kind of started writing letters home on crinkly airmail paper. The kids among us won't know what that is, but it's how we used to communicate. And when I, like, you're not gonna believe what happened to me. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great, have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed these and passed them around and they went viral in an old fashioned sense of the word. And that's really what began this life of, writing. And I, it doesn't happen this way, but I sold my first book when I was 24. That's now 35 years ago. And I, I've never held the job since. And so in, in my 20s, I was sort of bouncing around the world. So I wrote this book about Japan. I wrote a book about Oxford and Cambridge. I, I think you know this about me, that I spent a year as a circus clown. And it was somewhere in there. I was living in Nashville at the time, actually, across from three churches. And I thought I should be more conversant with the Bible because I hadn't really read it since I was a kid, which meant I hadn't really read it. And I put my bar mitzvah Bible by my shelf and my, my bedside table, not my shelf. And, and it sat there gathering dust. And then I went to see um, a fellow rabbi of yours who had married a friend of mine from Georgia. And on my first day, this would have been the late nineties, we went to the to the the tayala, to the promenade. And my friend said, there's Hachoma, which at the time was very controversial. And there's the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And, you know, in sort of, since we're kind of going down memory lane, you know, I, I think a, a lot of it to me actually goes back to this idea that I was a Jew from Georgia because I was sort of a part of the South. And I love the South and the familyness and the stickiness, right? And the storytellingness, but I was Jewish. So I was apart from it. But, and I love Judaism, the familyness and the stickiness and the storytellingness. But, 
not only was I apart from traditional Judaism and its you know three thousand year history, but also even from American Judaism because of the South, right? So I was sort of I've always felt a part of something and apart from it at the same time, and sort of that's what I thought about the Bible. Like, what if I kind of become a part of it, like join it, like it was the circus? I mean, I didn't say this publicly for a long time, like and become a part of it. And then leave and write about it, and that's the it, so it was this 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 whole kind of collective story that I had been on up to that point, which has then led me to what kind of became those uh, those Bible years for me. You know, it's interesting to me, having lived in Georgia for more than a decade. I want to say something about the South, and I want to say something about Southern Jews. Oh, please! And now living in South Florida, which is not the South, but it's a it's a different country. The interesting thing about the South, and Bruce. I could be wrong. I think it's the only region of America that is other. In other words, it has its own narrative. Every region has its own narrative, but we know that the South has its own narrative, maybe because it was its own country for a period of time. And Southern Jews, I think, are the only American group of Jews and group of American Jews that have their own narrative history and that are also viewed as other mm-hmm. by other Jews. Am I right about that? Well, first of all, I, I, I have two things to say about that. I mean, that's a very thoughtful and well-put observation, not surprisingly, uh, from you, um, Rabbi Salkin. But let me just first of all say, yeah, I mean, I actually think, you know, in an odd kind of way, that the only population that it's still acceptable to discriminate against is white Southerners. I mean, it's an interesting, absolutely right. Ch- you, know, you know, challenge, and and I think that that feeds some of the, you know, some of the political tensions that we all experience today. By but the way, on- you know, there was a whole period in the '60s. Just this is really not off topic. There was a whole period in the '60s where there was a trend in American situation comedies of shows about stupid Southerners. Oh, interesting. Right? The Beverly Hillbillies, yeah, right? right. Yeah, Green Pyle. Acres, which was sort of like that, okay? Yeah. Uh, Gomer Pyle. Yeah. Andy Griffith, where they weren't really stupid, but they were simple. Mm-hmm. And you don't have that about any other region in the country. Well, Queens, maybe, with All in the Family. I don't know. So, so it's still Queens, okay yeah. to discriminate against white Southerners. You were saying, yeah. So that's that, that's that's one thing, right? And then you've got this other, and, and this is kind of where where what I've been thinking about a lot in recent years, and and I'm sort of I'm already imagining it as perhaps a potential writing project in the future. So my my you know my family, uh, my father. I'm five generations of Georgian Jews, as I said earlier. My grandfather actually was born in rural Mississippi, and that sort of classic, um, <laughs> the classic Southern story of a dry goods salesman, and 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 he left behind a series of audio tapes, um, a story to, of his life story upon his death, which is 40 years ago, uh, almost to the week as as we tape this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, my father also. Um, uh, died a year and a half ago, as I think you know, and and in the last years of his life, and that will when we circle back <laughs> to the work I'm doing now about kind of finding meaning in times of change. A lot of it turns on my father's story. He left behind because I did this storytelling project with him, uh, a 65,000 word memoir that he completed one one email from me every Monday morning for many years at a time. Um, and so when my father died, uh, I went back and, and reread those 
this memoir of his and also my grandfather's tapes and and kind of did this deep dive into Southern Judaism. And, and sort of what I've realized is even the story of Judaism in America, the story of American Judaism writ large, kind of writes out the story of the South. Mm-hmm. Most of the influence was South to North, not North to South. We sort of pick up the story, right, with Ellis Island and, you know, and those immigrants who came at the turn of the 20th century. But in fact, Jews were coming to America uh, at the turn of the 18th and 19th century, and they were coming largely from the South from you know, South America and from the Caribbean where they had settled and were in various business, you know, industries like sugar and, and even slave trading, and they came north. So in a lot of ways, you can tell the story of American Judaism south to north, and that is not the way most people think about it. Wow, amazing. So Bruce, we talked about the South, talked about the Bible, Let's talk about your new book, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And what I found really interesting about this book, and I'll be talking about it later, is that in 1994, almost 30 years ago, I wrote a book called Being God's Partner, How to Find the Hidden Link Between Spirituality and Your Work, which was actually the first book written by a Jew about how to connect spirituality and meaning and value with the workplace. And I'll talk a little bit about it later because I want to talk about what you've done first. What inspired you to write this book? An explosion in my life, to go back in the story. So to to pick up the narrative, since this is a story ultimately about narrative, um, you know, I had what I now think of as kind of the classic fantasy linear life. Like I figured out what I wanted to do early. I just told that story. I did it for no money for a while. Then I had success, in fact, quite a lot of success with walking the Bible and the books and the TV shows. And this is, you know, when our lives really um, connected in a deep way, because you really stepped up at the temple and said, you know, come and let's not only talk about walking the Bible, but let's do these interfaith conversations in the wake of 9-11. And we did some signature events uh, together, you and I, that are, that were, are still very memorable. I got married in that uh, span of time. I had children. And again, this is not... My wife is an entrepreneurship, right? They talk about the hockey stick, right? There's the flat blade and then there's the, the stick. This was the hockey stick. But then in my 40s, my life just blew up. First, I got cancer, as you know, as the <laughs> new dad of three-year-old uh, twin daughters. Um, I had financial trouble because this family of mine was in the real estate business in Georgia, and that was a tough time to be in the real estate business after the Great Recession. And then my father got Parkinson's and got very depressed and tried to take his own life. Uh, six times in 12 weeks. So suddenly I'm this storyteller who doesn't know how to tell the story of my life and, and doesn't want to, you know, feels a mix of you know sadness and confusion and maybe some shame. But when I did tell that story to other people, it turns out that everybody has times in their lives when they're confused and stuck and in pain and don't know what to do. And so I said to my wife, like, I want to do something to help. And I, I didn't you know, to be honest about it, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't really have a sense like of this is what I'm going to find. But that set off set me off in this journey where I have spent the last six years traveling across the country, collecting and analyzing life stories of everyday Americans. I mean, and in the field of narrative psychology, which is sort of the adjacent to what I do, I mean, a typical paper will have six, eight, ten of these stories. I've done 400 now. 
in this period. And so the first thing I learned is that we go through these things I call life quakes um, multiple times in our lives. They lead to life transitions and we can you know, unpack this however you want. And I wrote a book about this called Life is in the Transitions that I tried to tell people, <laughs> describe their lives. Everyone was very kind. And then right before the book came out, the entire planet went into a global pandemic. <laughs> mm. And so suddenly in 2020, when Life is in the Transitions was published, I was sitting with the right book at the right time. And it you know, caught a nerve, became a bestseller. As you mentioned, there was a TED a talk and a TED course. And in that summer of 2020, and if we think back on it, right? Confusion, mass layoffs, work from anywhere, social justice movement, uh, public health crisis, political turmoil. I just had this deep sense because I was confused and everyone I knew was confused that that work was going to be the next domino to fall and that this was going to change a lot of the rules about work. And so this process that I do, which is ridiculously time sensitive, I mean, excuse me, labor intensive and somewhat time sensitive, um, it is a way, it turns out, to produce interesting insights. And so I went and did it again. Like, let's talk to people about work. I don't really know what I'm going to find, but let me do it. Um, and that's really what led, uh, again, to a series of surprises that I didn't expect, um, but to the search. So we're talking about what happens in the workplace, what happens with career. And you have an incredible statistic in this book that Two-thirds of Americans say they're unhappy with their work. Three-quarters say they're planning to look for new work over the next year. And unprecedented numbers of Americans are just quitting their jobs and they're just rethinking their routines. Why are people so unhappy? So I think, first of all, I think that's the right question. And um, I think that the answer to that question is they no longer have to believe the lies that we've been told about work for a very, very long time. Um, so uh, if you add up all these numbers that you talked about, I mean, just take the quit rate, for example. As you said, 50 million Americans quit a job in the last year as we tape this conversation. That's, mm. that's a third of the workforce. That's twice the number that it was 10 years ago. Um, and so what's going on here is that people are unhappy with their career and what they've come to realize, and they think something is wrong with them. Um, but in fact, what's wrong is the idea of the career itself. That's the lie that we've been told and people are realizing they don't have to subscribe to that lie anymore. So, you know, because it's, because, because you're a rabbi and because you and I have spent a lot of time in holy places, I, I think we should place blame, <laughs> let's start placing blame where it belongs which is in the book of Genesis. Like the, the worst story about work ever told is the Garden of Eden, because what happens is when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, what is their punishment? The answer is work is the punishment. So from the very beginning of life in the West, we have made work the opposite of paradise, right? So the, the, the idea is that work is supposed to be miserable, right? And for most of human history, there was no idea of the career, right? People lived where they worked and they worked where they lived. 90% of our time was spent raising food and, and you did everything in your house. You raised food, you made the candles, you, you know, grew, uh, took care of the sick. Like we did everything. All of this changes in, you know, sort of the big transformation that happens in the 19th century with the rise of the factory and the company and the corporation and the industrial economy and all of this. And this is an interesting moment in time 
you know, Rabbi, because I, I did. I was on I, I was on a cable business channel recently last week actually, and they said to me. 4,000 4, people lost their job because of AI. Like, this is going to be cataclysmic for our relationship with work. I'm like, you know how many people lost their lives in the, you know, the last 20 years of the, the 19th century? Answer, a third of the country. Mm. <laughs> so what happens is, and this is, of course, part of the Jewish story, right, is people leave rural areas and they go to big cities. Tens of millions of more come from overseas, right? A lot of them Jewish, and they're suddenly in big cities, and there's nothing to do with them. They don't have access to jobs. The jobs need access to new workers. So this guy named Frank Parsons, who was an engineer and a writer and himself had 20 different things he did, he invents the first career counseling center in 1908 in Boston. And this introduces the idea of the career. And what's the idea? Once in your life, if you're a male at you know in your early 20s, you're going to sit down, they're going to match you with an occupation, and you're going to do it for the next 50 years. Okay? Which, by the way, some people do. You just said you've been pulpit rabbi for 40 years. Like, some people still do that. Um, but most of us don't do that anymore. And, and all of the ways that we've talked about career ever since have been linear. The career path, right? The career track. The resume, which was, by the way, invented in the 1950s. What are all the, the corporate ladder? Like all of these are linear. Each job is supposed to be bigger and better than the last. And it's all about climbing. It's interesting, by the way, when I think about the Bible and I think about these spatial metaphors, you say something very interesting about climbing. Yes. The stories of Genesis and then, of course, the master story of Exodus is about climbing mountains or climbing a ladder, as in mm, Jacob's nice. ladder. But nice. you say something that's really interesting, that it's not about climbing, it's about digging. It's yeah. it's about something that I've thought about, which is that the stories of the patriarchs are not only about climbing mountains, they're also about digging wells. Can you tell stories about people who fell off the ladder, who became discontented, and who dug deeply and found a higher level of satisfaction. Well, first of all, I, this, dig, this digging and climbing thing is very interesting, right? Because, of course, even Jacob, right? you know, let me think about this. The, 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 the ladder is when he's on the way to Mesopotamia or when he's on the way home? He's on the well, way he's to on the, He's on the way to Back to Haran, fleeing from the wrath of his brother Esau, whom he has just built out of the blessing, right? But it's for, but it's before then he meets. It's before uh, he meets Rachel. He meets yeah. The, yeah, exactly. At the well. At the well, right? That's that's kind of that's my point, right? So that's interesting, right? So that the that the climbing, and of course, by the way, that ladder. If you want to, if you want to, kind of, if you want to, if you want to do some, uh, you know. It's, topographical midrash here that ladder there's descending and climbing right because the angels are descending down right. <laughs> uh, and he's and, and it's sort of metaphorically he's there to descend up so right so yeah the, but but to to go back um um to address your point head on yes the American story is all about climbing. This is beginning with Benjamin Franklin when he walks into Philadelphia, you know, poor in the beginning of his autobiography, and he leaves 30 years later a wealthy celebrity. It's climbing, rags to riches, up by your bootstraps, higher floor, bigger office, greater salary, more benefits. It's all about climbing. If there's one thing I've learned from, you know, 1,500 hours of interviews with people is that the people who are happiest and most fulfilled, they don't just climb, they also dig, right? So when they go through these moments, I call them work quakes, as you know, like 20 times in your life, you're going to hit a moment either when you're forced to or you choose to 
kind of rethink or reimagine who you are. And um, the people who are happiest in those moments perform what I call a meaning audit, right? They go back, they do personal archaeology, right? To me, it always goes back to that Bible thing, right? The idea that you can dig into the ground and learn about, you know, you can dig through the past and you can learn about the future. That's sort of the core idea of archaeology. And that's the human journey. Don't climb, dig. So, so like you, you asked for, you asked for um, uh, a story. So let me just tell a, a couple of stories. I'm thinking of a story that opens, um, uh, that o- o- opens the search about a woman who grows up in Kansas, okay, on the end of a dirt road. Her father worked was an auto mechanic, and she worked, you know, the, the, he worked the whole time, loved work, but sacrificed her, um, his family. She fell in love with gardening uh, when she was uh, watering mums in a, as a summer job. She follows, a guy, she follows a guy to Southern California. She thinks, I'm going to climb. She suffers, right? She's fired for being a waitress, and she's like, I'm about to fall out of the middle class. Um, and then she takes a work a job at a gardening company, and she's doing well. She gets married. Then first her mother, then her brother die in auto accidents. And she's flying back and forth to Kansas so much, the guy who runs this company hires an assistant. He starts molesting her. Um, and she's like, my, my mother was in the Marines. It's, I'm just not going to be to do this. And she says, well, what do I want to do? Like, I don't want to be my dad. I want to work for myself. So she walks away from this job, like literally rubs nickels together. It feels like she's falling out of the middle class to open uh, something called the San Diego Seed Company that sells you know, seeds uh, so that you can grow food in your backyard. And in the pandemic, this thing takes off. So people make, I think that what's interesting about this is that people make at some point in their work lives or their retirement lives, as it may be, these decisions that feel like an unright decision, not a wrong decision, but an unright decision that disappoints them. I think of Maroy Park, one of my favorite stories. Maroy Park, Asian American, grows up in the, in, I mean, born in the upper Northwest. You know, you got to be a doctor, lawyer, right? <laughs> her father gives her a chemistry textbook for her 16th birthday, but she wants to serve the country. She, she feels an attachment to America that her father doesn't feel because he's still got the immigrant resistance in some ways. She goes east to college. As she said, I chose the name brand. She joins the CIA. Is on the Soviet desk. And you and I are old enough to know when that was the prestige job in the CIA, right? She's like on the CIA. She's like super, you know, doing all the reporting to Congress and the White House. She says, you know what? I'm kind of a someone who can make things work better. So she walks away from the best job in the CIA to run payroll, <laughs> the least sexy job in the entire CIA, maybe the entire government. What does she end up doing? Running the CIA. She's the first Asian American woman to run the entire thing. So we make these unright choices because in some ways they speak to who we are. Because now, if you put all this stuff together, just to make one final point, because there's no career anymore, when 20 times in your life you can rethink and reimagine what you do, there's no more stigma for against toward spending time with your family, right? Giving back for a time, starting an enterprise that might fail because you're not always climbing because our lives are nonlinear. There's less penalty for getting off the path because there is no path and that frees you up to decide what you want to do. The challenge is, is that no one gives us a toolkit for identifying what is it that we want to do. What is it that we want to do? We'll be right back. 
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. And we're back. This is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. And we are talking with Bruce Feiler about all sorts of things, but mostly about his new book, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Career. So, Bruce, is is that... Is that idea, the idea of the career, is that is that dead? You've said that people will have many different careers in their lives now. And I'm I'm kind of unusual in that sense. I think most rabbis, by the way, probably are, but I've had different iterations of this career. Is the idea of the career as a narrative form for Americans? Is that is that a goner? Yes. I mean, it is a goner in the reality of how we live. The problem is, is that it's not a goner in this the way we set our expectations, right? So, you know, the way I like to think of it, Rabbi, is the should train. You know, we get on the should train at certain times and are like, you should do this and you should make this decision and you should feel that. Um, and I think that in effect, we have the, the, a, a lot of the challenge that we face, you know, as a culture right now is that we have linear expectations, but nonlinear lives. And it's the tension between the expectations um, and the reality that makes us feel like we're doing something wrong. I got to just underscore this because I want people to hear this. That was real smart. We have linear expectations, but we don't have linear lives. That really speaks to me Keep talking about that. Yeah, because I think that you know, if 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 you and I were to walk through the pews of your synagogue or you know any institution or up and down any street you can think of, we are led to believe that our lives are going to be linear. This is an accident of human history. In the ancient world, they didn't have clocks. There was no linear time, right? They think life is an agricultural cycle, so that the life is a cycle. It's actually the Hebrew Bible that introduces this linearity, but even how it's been interpreted over time has changed. In the Middle Ages, and life is in the transitions, I have these incredibly vivid you know, graphics, as you know, like they thought life was a staircase up to middle age and then down, right? So think about that. Like straight up, straight down, no variation, okay? That means no new love at 50, no, you know, changing what you do at 60, no retiring at 70 and moving to Palm Beach and opening, you know, and opening a B&B or an Airbnb or whatever it might be. Straight up, straight down. If you go back to the 19th century and the rise of science, this is what introduces the idea of the linear life. Why? Because they're looking at the world and they're saying, it's a factory, it's a conveyor belt, it's an assembly line. So all through the 20th century, when you and I were coming of age, a series of linear constructs, Freud, psychosexual stages, Piaget, children development stages, Erickson, eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief, the hero's journey, these were all linear constructs and they are all bunk. They are all bunk. The idea of a midlife crisis was invented, okay, 
by two academics, male academics, including Dan Levinson in, in New Haven. In the 1970s, he interviews 40 white men in New Haven and says, everyone's going to do the same thing in their 20s, the same thing in their 30s, and then have a midlife crisis between 39 and 44 and a half. So women, by the way, are completely, totally chopped out of this narrative. The, the, the man, you know, uh, Elliot Jock, who invented the term midlife crisis uh, 25 years earlier, he was laughed off the stage in London. He didn't even talk to anybody. He did biographies of famous men. And he said, I can't talk about women because they have mon- menopause and that throws the whole thing off. Well, hello, if that throws the whole thing off, then the whole thing deserves to be thrown off. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Just take the pandemic. If you're between 39 and 44 and a half, you were having a quote unquote midlife crisis. But if you were in your, you know, 50s, as I was, you were having a crisis. If you were 15, as my twin daughters were, you were having a crisis. This idea that, that, that we only have tumultuous life events at birthdays that end in zero is caustic and has caused tremendous amounts of human misery. We should bury it once and for all. Instead, the data that I have now collected over six years from 10,000 pages of transcripts is that the average person goes through a disruptor every 12 to 18 months and then a life quake, and I alluded to it earlier, right? That's a massive change. Three to five times in your life, and the signature piece of data in Life is in the Transitions is that the average length of the transition that comes out of the life quake is five years. So let's just do the math, three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years. That's 25 years. That's half of your adult life. You are in transition. And we have told people that these are periods of misery, that you have to grit and grind and like, you know, resilience your way through. It is deeply damaging if we do what I'm trying to do, and you know, which is to normalize the unstable periods, we don't stigmatize them. We can see them as painful, and difficult and challenging, but also periods of growth and renewal um, and reconstruction of a narrative. And by the way, what is the best example of this in human history? The five books in the Pentateuch, the Hebrew Bible, because if I don't have to tell you this, you've taught me and so many people about this. Where does the growth come? When Abraham leaves his father's house, he doesn't even know where he's going. God just says, go. When the Israelites cross over you know, cross the, the the Sea of Reeds or Red Sea, whatever you want to call it, right? And what's the first thing they do? They take me back. You know, but have we, we forgotten <laughs> that a large chunk of this, and I'm quite aware of this because this is where we are right now in the cycle of Torah readings, is the Midbar, is the wilderness, is the journey yeah. itself. And, but, but look, you and I, we were talking about being in Israel. Like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Sinai, <laughs> It don't take 38 years to get from <laughs> Egypt to the promised land. I mean, it doesn't. You can go in about a day and a half, depending on your mode of transportation. But God, in fact, says you have to spend 38 years because you've got to go through the transition. You've got to purge your old ways. And when you start breaking down, as I've done now in two books, what, what it involves, you got to shed certain habits. you got to create new ones. And then, of course, they get on the settled land. And what happens is, you know, it kind of goes bad. And off they go. And what are we told when they go off? By the rivers of Babylon, they wept, right? We're we're told it was painful. But what did they also do by the rivers of Babylon? They invented Shabbat. (laughs) You know, they invent sacred space. They invent reading the story. Like the growth is often in the 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 the, the cosine, right? It's in the sh- it's in the downside. It's in the oscillation. I've and wondered, by the way, over the years, and I learned this actually from the Orthodox Jewish feminist uh, Blue Greenberg, 
who writes about Shabbat, and she, sa- she says, six days you shall be a workaholic, but on the seventh day you shall join <laughs> the serene company of human beings. Six days you shall take orders from your boss, and the seventh day you'll be master or mistress of your own life. I'm one of those people who believes that if we non-Orthodox Jews could reclaim the idea of Sabbath or Shabbat, that this might have some kind of healing effect on the way we manage our work lives. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so now that gets us, I think, to a very interesting place, right? I've, I, I'm uh, grateful to have met uh, Blue, Blue Greenberg once or twice in my life, right? And you know, and there, and she, and a lot of pioneers were, were doing um, Viva Zornberg. I mean, you know, we're doing a very interesting kind of sort of uh, uh, quasi-feminist. I'm not sure either one of them would have liked that word, but you know, kind of rereadings of that text. Because now I would push back, okay? So this conversation about the search, you know, began with you asking the question of why are people so unhappy, right? And I think that one of the reasons that people are unhappy is this bifurcation that we make (laughs) between, you know, time of work and time of play. And that's what's breaking down, right? I mentioned, you know, maybe I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, the search is built around three lies and a truth about work. So lie number one is we have a career. Lie number two is you have a path, right? So we've been talking about that. You're going to have 20 work quakes in your lives. And I actually think the signature piece of data is that um, in, in the search is that half of work, you know, 45% of work quakes begin in the workplace, conflict with your boss, uh, your company shuts down, you're laid off. Um, but that means most, 55% of work quakes begin outside the workplace, Something happens in your personal life and your family or your health or you just have a change of mindset. And that, I think, is very telling because I think what it shows, Rabbi, is that in the tension between work and life, life is playing a greater role. And that's what's happening. Six in ten, you know, half of the workplace now is millennials and Gen Z. And they are saying that they're not prepared to make kind of the devil's bargain that we all did about work. They're saying that they want meaning, right? So, so let me the, ask a question. Of, of people who are quietly quitting and resigning, did, did yeah. you come across any Jewish professionals who are in that particular category? Because I'm hearing about it subtly and quietly. Yes. I think that, I mean, I, um, I'm i trying to think off the top of my head um, if I, uh, I'm thinking of a couple of rabbis that I've done and I'm thinking of a lot of, uh, there's certainly plenty of Jews that I've done. I'm not sure uh, if there's a Jewish professional off the top of my head. I can pull up my list of people. What about clergy? Yeah, I, the the um, yeah. In fact, I have a wonderful story in life. Is then transitions of a um, uh, uh, of an Episcopal priest who became a country music singer, a country music songwriter. Actually, oh, I need to hear this. I need yeah. to hear this. I envy yeah. that person. Tell me that story. Yeah, because he he was drawn to the you know to the liturgy and to the music, and he was he was in um, I think it was he it was in it, it was uh, it, it might have been Chattanooga. It was in it was in East Tennessee, and uh, he was there during the country music boom, you know, of of the '90s, and he starts a, a side job, and this kind of gets to how it works, right? So so because this I think is what's interesting, right? So the third lie is that you have a job. Right? You have a job that you do during the day, and then you go to your family, and then you keep Shabbat. Like, that's what you were talking about. But that's not how we live anymore. In fact, only half of us even have a main job anymore. Okay, So there's a main job. We have up to five jobs. One is a main job. Two I would, is a care job, like caring for 
you know, children or aging relatives, which I've been doing both <laughs> in recent years. Three quarters of us have a side job, which we know what that is. That's been talked about a lot. But there's two other kinds of jobs people have. One is what I call a hope job, which is something that you do on the side that you hope leads to something else, like writing a screenplay, right, or selling pickles at the farmer's market. And so so the, uh, this guy had a hope job writing country music, and then one of them hits. <laughs> and then once he hits, it was an opportunity. So he was like preaching during the day and doing this hope job uh, in the afternoon. There's a wonderful story in Life is in the Transitions, a guy named Nigel Likely, uh, who in fact is an educator at a university in Michigan, and he feels called to the ministry. So he starts a you know, a, a side job in in the ministry, which then, and then he becomes the pastor of a church. So he's got his day job during the week. He's doing this on the weekends. And then several members of his family and his wife's family have broken families and they take the children in because he grew up in a broken family and his care job is really important. And this is an example of how we live today, Rabbi, which is that we, what's non-negotiable is the meaning. Right? If you remember one thing from this conversation, it's that fewer people are searching merely for work. More people are searching for work with meaning. And this is being led by younger people. Six and 10 millennials say meaningful work is more important to them than their parents. That's now half the workforce. Nine in 10, nine in 10 Americans in a Harvard study say they are prepared to give up 25% of their lifetime earnings for work that they find meaningful. So these young people are saying, I'm not prepared to make the sacrifices that my parents made. You know who told me this first? You'll like this. Harold Kushner. Of blessed memory. Of yes. blessed memory in, uh, of recent weeks as we taped this conversation. He and I were doing an event. You mentioned America's Prophet. He had written a book, and I had written America's Prophet. We did an event in a synagogue in Brookline. There was a, I must have been 700 people there. And we interviewed each other. And so I was talking about the lessons of Moses and how it shaped American history. And he told me this idea that I still think is one of the smartest things that I've heard on this conversation. And he said, we all grew up with this idea and it's part of the American idea, back to the climbing, that we want to do better than our parents. But because even just the, the, the growth in real estate value alone means most of us are not going to do better than our parents financially. Absolutely. And what he told me, and I think he was dead right, was we want to do better than our parents in the quality of our lives. And that's the change. It's, an, it's that people were always unhappy, but younger people today are no longer prepared to be unhappy and give up family, balance, flexibility. And a whole series of changes, including the pandemic, which now opens up work from anywhere, it's destigmatized quitting, as we've been saying, the career ladder, the career linear thing is no longer the reality. All of these things have allowed us, if we are unhappy with what we do, to go do work that makes us happy. And what I've tried to do, I believe for the first time in the search, is then give you a set of questions to ask yourself so that you figure out what is it that gives you meaning, what is it that makes you happy, because no one's ever provided that. This is an amazing project that you've taken on. And I think in some ways this might be the most meaningful one that you've done because you're pointing to a real cultural shift. So now let me ask you a question. What will be the upshot of this 
in contemporary American culture, if you're going to be a prophet, not Moses perhaps, not even Abraham, if you're going to take a look 20 years down the line, what can you see happening? What I see happening, what I hope happens, what I believe is happening, maybe even what I think should happen, is that we are rewriting the rules of work. We are taking back control of our work lives from the overlords, <laughs> uh, you know, from, from whomever that might be, from the expectations, from the corporations, from the employers. The pharaohs that live within us. Exactly. Let's get back you to know, Moses, right? The, uh, All of us are dealing with a pharaoh within us yes. and a Moses within us. And what you're trying to do here is you're trying to liberate that Moses. And it's going to be hard. And you know, you said 20 years, and we were discussing earlier. <laughs> it's harder. There are many more options. If you go back a century, Rabbi, most of the sources of meaning were given to us. We had to live where our parents wanted us to live and do what our parents wanted us to do and love who our parents wanted us to love and believe what our parents wanted us to believe. We don't have to do that anymore. We can live where we want to live and do what we want to do and love who we want to love and believe what we want to believe. It's harder. And I so think what happens is we get frozen. We get kind of writer's block trying to write the story of our own lives. And so what I'm trying to do is empower people to become the hero of your own story. And if you look at those stories, they're all involved pain. It's difficult when they get into the wilderness. It's difficult what Abraham goes through as separate from their family. It's different when they were by the rivers of Babylon. And every story ever told from Orpheus to Hercules to, to uh, you know, Odysseus, there are stories, there are wolves, there are clouds, there are there are woods and wolves and pandemics and downsizings and diagnoses and retirements and doubt and fear and insecurity and concern. But we want, you know, the, the Italians, we've been talking Hebrew, let's talk Latin for a second. The Italians have this wonderful expression, lupus and fabula, the wolf and the fairy tale. The fabula is our life when everything is wonderful. And then sure enough, a wolf will show up and we want to banish the wolf. But you can't banish the wolf because if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And being a hero means getting around the wolf through the pandemic, you know, over the diagnosis, recovering from the death, you know, coping with the retirement, getting through the woods. That's what it is. If you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And if there's one thing I learned in all of this, these many years is that we have the right and deserve and can be the hero of our own story. Amazing. Amazing. You know, when I wrote Being God's Partner, How to Find the Hidden Link Between Spirituality and Your Work, and I would like to think that those two books, that book and your book, should really coexist on the same shelf between bookends. I really wanted people to challenge the culture of workaholism and this mm. whole idolatry of career. And it was what I was facing at that particular time. And I want to I want to end on the following note. We've used several words in this segment together. The word career is related to the word carry, not your sister, but <laughs> what we carry with us. 
Chariot. Yeah, it's because it's a chariot is what it was, carried the idea around the track. Wow. And then there's vocation, which seems a little better. Vocation from vocal, and that's the voice that calls out to us. But if I'm going to speak Hebrew, I have to go to avodah. And the great thing about the word avodah is that it's the word not only for work, but also for divine worship. And mm. what I noticed, and what you're seeing a complete transformation in, is this idea, work and worship, that there are some people who worship their work. But I think that there are ways of making our work into worship, which is to say, to serve something higher and to incorporate the highest pieces of ourselves. But again, I, I have to ask you, is that asking too much of what we do in the workplace? Sometimes, but not all times. So I, I think that the, first of all, I think I, I like going back to to this work that you did, right? And I'm also thinking, and I've never told you this actually, um, uh, that before my daughters went through their um, the father of identical twin daughters, as you know, um, they graduated from high school last night as we taped this conversation. They just turned 18 and five years ago uh, when they were going through their Benot Mitzvah, the rabbi of our synagogue in Brooklyn gave us a copy of your book and it was specifically designed to find meaning in times of change. And that's what you've talked about with work here. And that's what we're talking um, about uh, about right now. Here's the thing. 20 times in your life, you're going to have a moment where you rethink and you reimagine what it is that you do. All of those times, you're not going to make the same decision. Some of them, you'll say, I got to stick forward. Like Maybe I'm in a moment in my life where I need to make money because I got to pay off my student loans or in my case, send two kids to college. But the difference is for all of, all of human history, we've said at every time, that's the only metric that you're going to, that you should follow. Because sometimes you may say, oh, I have young children, I want to spend time with them. Or my mother's going through chemo and I want to be at her side. Or I want to give back. Or I want to serve this country. Or I want to fight climate change. Over and over we get this moment. And if for at some moments you have to say, you know what, <laughs> I need to stick with this, stick it through with this job because something else in my life is, is the most important thing, that's fine because you know in two or three or five or six years that you, you can revisit it so you don't have to make it all the time. That is the difference. And I want to end from my point of this, uh, before I hand the microphone back to you, by saying you talked about this idea of spirituality in the workplace, right? Which is another idea that's been sort of anathema to the idea of work, right? You know, I... I never wrote about work. I mean, this is my 15th book. And I, with the things I write about, right, spirituality, family, health, happiness, right, that, that was supposed to be nowhere near, as we said, because work was the punishment <laughs> uh, for, you know, for, for, for losing the divine, essentially, if you go back to the, uh, the Genesis interpretation. And my wife likes to say of me that I have hard knowledge about soft things. Well, work was the opposite of soft. It was hard. The first question I asked everybody Rabbi, in my conversations, what's the first word you think of when I say work? And what was interesting is only a third of the people said what they did. Teacher, manager, union, you know, stockbroker, doctor. Two-thirds of the people gave a word about how they felt about what they did. Happiness, mission, purpose, sad, exhaustion. Okay? Here's how I like to think of it. It's a formula. Work equals numbers plus words. 
We spend two-thirds of our time talking about the numbers. Salary, benefits, productivity, efficiency, stock price, <laughs> hours, commute. In fact, when you talk to people, they spend two-thirds of the times on the words. We need less math <laughs> and more literature. We need more poetry. We need to bring our full selves to our work lives. And if that's mission, and if that's calling, and if that's service, if that's balance, if that's family, if that's happiness, if that's meaning, that is the change. And we, oddly enough, have the millennials. <laughs> we have the younger workers. We have women. We have diverse workers to thank us for making this. And it's teaching a lot of us who have those linear expectations how to change. You can find meaning. You deserve it. You can write your own story. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to end by saying uh, the following. That a number of years ago, the late Mother Teresa was helping people who were starving in the famine in Ethiopia. It was during the 1980s. We're talking now 40 years ago. I'll never forget this story, and I've often taught this. And people were dying on all sides. And an interviewer asked her, how can you how can you tend to the sick and the dying knowing that you're not going to be successful with everyone? And she said, we're not here to be successful. We're here to be faithful. And I think that being faithful to your own vision and mission in life is absolutely crucial. And your book is going to help a lot of people do that. And so, again, thank you to our friend Bruce Feiler. Thank you, Bruce. My pleasure. Good luck with your transition. Thank you'll, you. You'll find a great new chapter for your story, I trust. I imagine so. And so, friends, I invite you all to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. I just want to remind you all, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. And you would help us immensely if you download our podcast and leave us a five-star rating. Many thanks, friends, and we will see you again soon. Thank you so much.